uh, back in John chapter 3 today. And remember last week uh, we saw and developed one of the great salvation verses that really opened up an incredible uh, study uh, through a story in the Old Testament. And I'm trying to, John is such an incredible book for this. You know, I, <clears throat> oh man, you haven't even got a clue how many incredible stories that are found in this book. And we're going to look at each one of them. And just, and my goal is this, is to try to get you to uh, understand the best way for you to uh, let that Bible um, work for you. You know, it's a it's a very simple process, but the key is 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 learning it and then just disciplining yourself to it. You know, and we looked at the story of the brazen serpent. Now, the story of the brazen serpent's all the way back in Numbers chapter twenty-one, but Jesus made a reference to himself in John chapter three, verse fourteen, and that was really the verse we looked at last week. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I wanted to develop that for you. I, I'm not interested in just teaching you the Bible. <clears throat> I'm interested in showing you how that you make the Bible open itself up to you. You know, I may not always be around. You may not always have somebody to be able to, to spell it out for you. At some point in your life, you need to learn how to do that. And, you know, my goal at this point is to not only just teach you the Bible and teach it right, but show you how that you get to that point. So we took a lot of time last week and we looked at that Old Testament story and saw, you know, how it was a very practical lesson for us uh, when we take John 3, 14 and Numbers 21 and, and, and put them together. You know, and how that that, you know, no matter how we try to, and I, and I told you this, you know, no matter how we try to project ourselves, and God's people do it all the time, God's people are famous for wanting to pretend they're spiritual without never spending any time in the Bible. And that is the hallmark of, of Laodicea Christianity. And uh, you, it's, it's rapid. It's ra- rampant. It's everywhere in, in, in Christianity today. You'll find people that want to project themselves as some great spiritual person, but there's just no relationship with the Word of God in any way, shape, or form. And, uh, you know, and I said... And we've looked at no matter how we try to project ourselves as really spiritual, the Word of God, um, you know, will always show us uh, who we really are. And it's that looking glass principle out of James chapter 1, verses 22 and 25 that we've talked so much about. You know, looking into the Word of God and seeing who we really are. And, uh, you know, we saw how God's people will always blame the Moseses in their life. And boy, that was a great concept that people will always blame the people who are trying to help them and because, you know, they don't want to do what's right themselves. But in truth, you know, it's God uh, who we really have an issue with. And boy, that was a great, great lesson we saw in that with how God himself told us where the real problem was with the children of Israel. And, uh, you know, this is why John, uh, in First John chapter 4, verse 1, he tells us as Christians that we are to try the spirits. That sounds kind of spooky, you know, but it's really not. It's a very sound biblical process. You try the spirits. And he says, try the spirits to see if they are of God or they line up with, with God's spirit. And the, the, the sad thing is that most of God's people, they don't have a clue how to do that. This is why they get caught up in, in all kinds of goofy stuff that really, you know, you know, 
it just causes all kinds of issues uh, in their life. And, uh, you know, because John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 tells us that every, not every spirit that we encounter is going to be of God. When you come through the Bible, you'll find that there's four spirits in the Word of God. Man can have three of them. And those three are the ones that you need to try, uh, you know, especially with God's people because, you know, God's people may be saved and they may have the Spirit of God in, in dwelling in them, but that doesn't mean the Spirit by which they operate in is always the Holy Spirit of God. And, you know, in Job chapter 26, verse 4, one of those great passages in the Old Testament, it, it asked us, whose spirit came from thee? And the spirit we project uh, you know, you can't hide that. I mean, you can dress nice and clean up nice and, and carry the 55-pound King James Bible and amen louder than a Chiefs football game. But at the end of the day, if your spirit doesn't line up with the spirit of the Word of God, and uh, then, you know, it, it, it just, it's not real. And unfortunately, most of God's people don't even know how to do that. They don't even know what to look for. And, uh, and we talked about developing a trained eye, didn't we? We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. Training your eyes to look uh, for certain things uh, in the Scriptures. Eyes in the Bible are an incredible study. And I don't have time to get into it all this morning, but uh, uh, it's, it's an incredible thing. And, uh, you know, training your eyes to look at certain things in the Scriptures. Uh, most people, when it comes to the Bible, do not have the time or the patience to really do a study in the Word of God the right way. We're so busy in life. And, uh, you know, we think that we can pop on a guy and listen to him preach or something like that. And really, there's nothing wrong with that. I know people do that while they're driving. You do that and you're getting ready to work in the morning. And, I, and there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm going to tell you this. At some time in your world, you have to have a time where it's just you and God in that Bible. And if you don't do that, then, you know, you're just gleaning a lot of things that God has given some other people. God has to give you some things. That's part of the process of God training you to see things in the Bible. And if you don't get in the Bible yourself, then the training is, is, is never there. You know, and I'm just telling you, you know, just if you would just follow six basic little steps things that, that, you know, if you want to, first of all, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to the Bible, the first thing you ought to do before you ever try to get anything out of it is you ought to pray over it. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 45 says, then he opened up their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. You have to get on the same level with the Holy Spirit of God for him to open up those scriptures to you. And, uh, you know, I most people don't have time for that. You're only going to give God 15 or 20 minutes in the Bible anyhow, and then you're going to get on with what you want to do. So without you ever opening it up and inviting God in and having him to show you, I've told you, I haven't told you this for a long time, but it's, it's, I've said it many times over the years, that Psalms 119 is probably the greatest 176 verses. It's obviously the longest psalm, but it is the greatest psalm about God teaching you the Bible. And every, every one of those verses will deal with a different aspect of God giving you the Scriptures 
or your attitude about getting them from God. And I've told you before, I haven't said it for a long time, years and years and years ago, I saw the value in that. And I put together a prayer out of Psalms 119. I mean, there's 176 verses. The astronomical uh, connections are probably in the, in the zillions. But I put together, I put together a, a, a 14 petition prayer out of that thing. I was real spiritual, two times seven. And, and, and for years and years and years, I would, before I'd ever get into the Bible, I'd pretend that God was sitting in a chair across from me and I would read him that prayer and pray that prayer to him. And it was a prayer based on what David told God about him wanting to learn the word of God and what he would do with it if God gave it to him. And, uh, you know, most of us are so busy when it comes to getting into the Bible that, you know, we don't even think about praying over it before we get to it. But I would suggest that that would be your first stop. Then the second thing I'd, I'd have you to do, I'd encourage you to do, is when you read it and then survey the passage. Don't just read it and then jump in it with both feet. That's, that's not the way you want to do it. You want to scan it. You want to survey it. You want to look at each word in whatever you're trying to read. You want to look at each phrase. You want to look at each term. You want to look at every aspect of it very carefully. You want to look at verses. You want to look at chapters. You want to look at complete books. And, uh, you know, you want to see how this book, survey it, look at it, take some time, ask yourself, how does this book fit into the overall books of the Bible? And, of course, you know, uh, you, uh, you want to find things that, uh, anything that matches up, that you can run it back. It's what we did last week with Numbers 21 and John chapter 3. And that's an easy one. I mean, Jesus himself gave you the key to that as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Duh, all you got to do is find out what that is and you make the connection. They're not all that easy. But you start with the easy ones. You look, the third thing is you look for things that seem out of place. You know, most guys, people, when they come to things that in the Bible that they see that don't think it fits, their first, their first reaction is, well, God made a mistake. You know, and of course, uh, that's not true. The greatest key to unearthing truth out of the Bible is the fact that God put things together that didn't match up. And uh, you want to see what's out of place. We saw that in John chapter 3 with a story of Nicodemus. Remember when I told you that Jesus said, except a man? And I took a lot of time and showed you how the, why didn't he say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He said, a man. He didn't say you the man. He said a man in a general context. And we studied that and we know why that is now. Another thing that you would check is there I gave you as we says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, that had to jump out at you like, you know, ugly on an ape. I mean, goodness gracious. You know, the kingdom of God's inside us. It's a spiritual kingdom. You cannot see it. But Nicodemus could. The nation of Israel could. The fourth thing that I would encourage you to do, and we talk about this all the time, look for key words that you can run back to other passages. Uh, and these key words, most of the time, many times, will help you define what you're, what you're looking at. And then the fifth thing is you want to ask yourself, you know, who's he speaking to here? 
You just don't want to jump in, and, and I've told you many, many times, you want, to, you want to look at the passage, you want to look at the book, you want to look at the verse, and you want to ask yourself, does this take place before the cross, or does this take place after the cross? And it's these things, number six, then these things that if you develop them, you'll develop a context. You know, through the chain of biblical evidence that is right there in front of you, you don't have to make anything up. And that gets, gets some people into so many trouble, so many issues with the Bible. They see something, they think it could be this, so they make it that. There ain't no more ludicrous way in the world to do your Bible in that way. You have to have an unbroken chain of evidence, biblically and historically. And you study your Bible, you dig out your Bible, you lay out something in your Bible, only on established truth. A trained eye will always look for things that are consistent, but a trained eye will always look at things that are inconsistent too. And this is why you ask yourself, why doesn't this match with this? Or why does this match with this? But in whatever you do, however you open up the Scriptures, you never step outside the guidelines of the Bible interpreting itself. We are not in the business of telling God what His book means. We're in the business of letting Him tell us what it means. Let your Bible work for you. That Bible is the greatest workbook that you've ever seen in your life to help you. But it's there to work for you. Most of God's people, they have a King James Bible their whole life, and they never, never, never learned how that Bible can work for them. And of course, you want that Bible not only to work for you, but once it begins working for you, it'll open itself up to you. I love the aspect that when it comes to the Bible, I don't have to, I don't have to suspect anything. I don't have to wonder about anything. I mean, I may wonder what this means, but I don't have to, you know, the Bible will lay itself out. It's like the mushroom story I told you last week, you know. Uh, they're right there all around you, but most people can't see them. I can. And in the Bible, truth is dripping out of it. In every verse, in every passage, in every word, in every story, it's all around us. But we become oblivious to it and can never, never make the Bible in our lives what it needs to be because, you know, we just don't, uh, we, we don't see it. We don't develop our trained eye, our senses. Back in the book of Hebrews, it talks about people that have to be taught the Word of God over and over and over and over again. That, you know, they've been saved 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and all they do, they're still in the little salvation versus mode. And he says, the meat of the Bible, doctrine, belongs to them that are by, uh, with age, by reason of use, who have exercised their spiritual abilities. And that's what you have to do. I mean, and, and one of the ways you do that is you, you ask questions. <clears throat> you know, the, the reason why I do it a Thursday night Bible study for any question you want to ask, and I've done that from the day... I started my ministry almost 50 years ago because I knew the importance of having a place where people can ask questions. Now, not everybody asks, and I don't want to say this wrong, not everybody asks good questions. 
And sometimes people feel intimidated because you think your question is stupid. And I've said it for years and years. There's no, there's no stupid question about the Bible. Some of my answers are probably stupid, but there's no real stupid questions about the Bible. But it's okay even if they were because that's how you learn. If you ask five questions about the Bible and three of them are goofy, but two of them are good, you've made progress. And there's nothing wrong with asking a question in the Bible that, you know, that you're off base on. There's nothing wrong with that. Because if somebody can teach you how to put it on base, then you learn something. You don't always learn things in life by knowing everything in life. You learn most of life by not knowing everything in life. And the goofy mistakes you make or the questions you ask that somebody, you know, you would think to yourself, well, that's not a very good question. Well, maybe it's not, but it's an opportunity to learn. And you learn how not to come up with those questions again. And it's, 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 it's part of the process. Part of the process. You know, now today uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about the, the next two verses here, verses 15 and 16. And you will remember that uh, last week I read all three verses, uh, but wanted to establish uh, verse 14 so we could better uh, put 15 and 16 into a proper context. So I'm going to read all three verses again today, and then we're going to, uh, uh, we're going to try to put all three of these together for you. And I, I want to show you again how that you make the Bible work for you. I want to talk to you about training your eye, your senses, to look for things in the Bible. <clears throat> Don't just be a, a, a you know, a, somebody who comes to the Bible and just uh, without really getting anything out of it. <clears throat> now he says in verse 14, and this is where we were at last week, John chapter 3, verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, <clears throat> even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we, we covered this last week that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jordan, would you stand up and ask God blessing on the service this morning, buddy? Thank you, buddy. Now, verse 14 last week, <clears throat> we, we should now understand the brazen serpent as it applies in two areas. First of all, in the Old Testament nation of Israel, and then through the parallel that Christ made, uh, how it fits into the New Testament church as a, as a model, as a picture. The Lord clearly laying it all out as he tells us that on the cross he became for us what he was to Israel uh, as that serpent was raised up. And of course, you know the look and live concept that they had to get bitten by fiery serpents. And that is a picture of Christ being lifted up on the cross. Now, from that story, and you, you know this, but I just want to tie it in here. Uh, you know, another great way to study your Bible will be what we call types or pictures. I told you last week how that the Bible is nothing more than a glorified picture book. It's, it's just filled with them. Uh, that through an event or in a story, as you read it in the Old Testament, 
that it will illustrate some biblical truth of the New Testament. And the Old Testament is filled with them. Somebody said one time, and I heard this years and years and years and years and years and years and years ago, and uh, right off that a comet hit and killed all the dinosaurs. Uh, uh, somebody said this. The Old Testament is like an art gallery with long hallways with hundreds and hundreds of pictures on the wall. And you walk down this, this corridor, you can look at all these pictures. But the problem is there was a power failure and you're now in pitch black walking down this corridor and you can't see the pictures on the wall. But when somebody gives you a flashlight, you can hold it up now and the flashlight allows you to see the pictures. Think of the Old Testament being an art gallery in the dark and the New Testament being your flashlight that shows you the pictures. That's the way it works. And, uh, you know, as you grow spiritually, you'll learn them. But I got to say this, <clears throat> staying with the New Testament format and structure, here's the importance of having a Bible-believing church that actually teaches you the Bible. You know, the job of a pastor is to teach his people the Word of God, passing on truth, as the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, committing to faithful men, and, you know, and then keeping the heresy out. A lot of heresy goes on today in churches. And uh, the way that you keep it out, that's the pastor's job, is you don't allow it to get in. And then you, the job of the pastor is to teach his people the Bible. Show them how to develop the Scriptures. <clears throat> pastor's job is not to get up on and, and I don't know where they got this. Well, I do know where they got it. <clears throat> the, the idea of pastors today is they just get up and they just sprinkle the Bible out there and give you something nice and you go home with it. And, of course, you go on Sunday morning, and that's all you get. If they have a Sunday school before, that's all you get. If you have a Sunday night service, that's all you get. Uh, if you have a Wednesday night service, you probably don't even get that. But it, the bottom line is, that's, that's not his job. It's a bigger format than that. The pastor's job is to not only teach his people the Bible, but to find a way to help them develop the Scriptures and rightly dividing them. It isn't enough for a Bible teacher or a pastor. You people who disciple people, you know this to be true. This is why when you start to disciple somebody, you know, the lessons that we use are just a means to an end. Now, you may take two or three work weeks talking about some other issues in their life before you even get into the discipleship, or it will be sprattled through it. You know why? Because the Word of God, you're supposed to develop those things. And you develop the Scriptures with your people. You take the time not just to give them the Bible, which so many idiots out there do. you got to invest your own life with them to give them the time and show them how to actually develop the Scriptures. And you have to set aside time to do that so they can ask any questions that they need to ask. That's what it's for. And at the same time, you set up time together uh, for them to learn the Bible in depth. Uh, putting it together like we did in our Bible Institute. We'd started, what, three or four years ago? Took everybody in this church that wanted to get to that level. And, and look what it's done for so many of you. The people ministry was another one, but it was on a different level of, that you could actually help me in ministering with people. That you know that when you get somebody to work with, how I want it done, biblically. 
And of course, look what it's done. Our Bible studies on Thursday night are always a great, always a great time together because it's a time where we can have that relationship of asking questions about the Bible. And Sunday morning, I'm not just up here preaching to you. I want to take every moment that I have, every moment that I can, and help you, those of you who want it. Now, I get it. Not everybody wants it, and that's okay. That's not my deal. That is okay. But I'm telling you right now that, that, that for anybody that wants it, it's my responsibility as the pastor of this church to get you what you need, whatever that may be, and to always be looking at for other opportunities. And for me, that's really easy because I just do for you what I have done for myself. That's the value of me being so stupid when it comes to things in life in the Bible. I had to take the hard things of the Bible and break them down that any imbecile could understand them. And that's for your benefit because I do the same thing with you. I mean, one imbecile to another. I mean, that's what we do. But I have learned this over the years, and this is so true. And we say this all the time. I hear pastors say it all the time. They'll get up in the pulpits and say that your children are a reflection of your parenting skills. But I, everybody likes to, all the pastors like to jump on that one, you know, and preach that one. But I'm going to tell you something. Churches are a reflection of the pastor's spiritual teaching skills. It's a two-way street. And you learn types by somebody laying them out for you. You're not going to, this is the importance of a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. You're not just going to get into your Bible and spend enough time in there, and then suddenly it's gonna, you're going to get up in the morning and, and see all those things, like you're going to live for 30, 40 years and wake up and speak French some morning. Somebody has to teach you. That's God's process. Problem is, nobody's teaching anybody today. You know, uh, their, their main emphasis isn't you learning the Bible. Their main emphasis is they're taking up an offering, building big buildings, building big temples, edifices, doing all these goofy stuff that they do. And God's people get lost and trampled in the, in, 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 in the deal. But you know what? It would be a terrible thing. I mean, it's always a terrible thing, but it would be a worse terrible thing if this was 100 years ago. The 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 idea today is the fact that nobody really wants the truth anyhow, so they fit into that. I mean, somebody said one time, well, uh, you know, so and so's got a church of twenty five hundred people. Well, who wouldn't go to a church twenty five hundred people that you can be a Christian and live like the world? Well, you'll pack that place out every Sunday. Try to have a church where you're held accountable with the Word of God that you got to live a different life and see what happens for you. See. People are so stupid today. They don't get it. And in time, you know, somebody lays it out for you. That's the job of the church. And in time, you'll learn how to do it yourself. If the pastor does his work with you, and then you do the work for yourself. And types are one of the most incredible ways. And last week you had a very easy example of a type. And, uh, you know, the first five years when I got right with the Lord, uh, you know, I jumped into the ministry pretty quick and started doing things. But when it came to my Bible, we had a Thursday night Bible study back in Canton, you know, just like we have Thursday night Bible study here. That's not the reason I have mine on Thursday. 
but uh, but just the way it worked out. But uh, the first five years I was there, I went every Thursday night. It started at seven o'clock too, and went till nine. Uh, I never asked one question in five years. But I cooked down. My goal was simple: that there's a lot of other people asking questions that I needed to know. And so I felt like instead of me asking one question, if I just kept my mouth shut and listened to eight or nine questions that somebody would ask and get it down and my goal, and we didn't have tapes back then. We didn't have CDs. We didn't have any of the stuff that we had. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, I mean, calculators just came out. I mean, we didn't have any of the stuff that you got. We didn't. We couldn't pop it into a, into a thing and listen to it. There was no tape. Uh, I mean, ministries to, per se. Uh, it was cassette, if you ever remember what those were. And it was just, uh, you know, you had to get it. And I sat there, and I sat there for five years and never asked a question. But my goal was, is to get everything down that was asked, and then by next week, have it in my Bible, have it firmly understood in my mind. And then if somebody else would ask that question or ask me that question, I could teach it. Now, you go through five years with, what, five or six questions a week, plus all the other stuff you're getting, you're going to learn your Bible. But it was a church that taught me those things, you see. And I learned, I learned. You know, I learned that in the Bible there's 18 men who foreshadow and are a type of the Antichrist that's going to come. If you want a complete composite picture of everything he is, study those 18 types. I learned that there was 21 types of Christ. And I learned that if you wanted a complete composite of who Christ was and what he did, study those types. Those are the easy ones. I saw the book of Job as a type of the tribulation. Somebody taught me that. I just didn't get up one morning and see that. A Bible-believing church with a Bible-believing pastor who knows what his job is, it's his job to teach you those things. But it's your job to learn those things. Now, at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll never put your finger at me and say, I didn't teach you, but I'll point my finger at you and say, you didn't do with what I gave to you. I got a pretty long finger. That's for me. I'm busy. I learned the type of David and Solomon. I mean, there are so many, so many here, but in a generic way, David reigns for 40 years. Solomon reigns for 40 years. David in that scenario is a type of Christ at the second coming of Christ, and he wipes out all the enemies of Israel. When Solomon comes to the throne and reigns for his 40 years, there's no more wars. He's a type of Christ in the millennium. Those are easy ones. I've already told you, you know, that every story in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will be some picture. That's an easy one. In the Bible, you have Abraham. He's a type of God the Father. You have Joseph. He's the greatest type of Christ. You have Daniel. He's the greatest type of the Holy Spirit of God. Those are easy. Thousands of them. And we've seen it many, many times from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that, you know, in other key places, God's people in the Old Testament will be a picture of God's people in the New Testament. He tells you, they're for our examples and in samples, for our admonition. You learn from those pictures. Now, I, I, this is no exaggeration. In the last 17 years, I probably laid all of this out in a, a bucket loads more, probably 200, 300 times. I've did it on Thursday night. Many of the questions get redundant and ask over and over again, which is fine. The price of learning is repetition. 
I've, I did it in Bible Institute. I've done it in the people ministry. I've done it on Sunday morning. I've done it on Thursday morning. It's, it's the old mindset that the more you hear it, the more it may stick with you. And yet many of God's people have been around and they still don't have it. They still don't get it. And if the Bible is a picture book like last week, then the types and the pictures will be the key factor in opening up what you read. Bible says at the entrance of thy word, it giveth life in Psalms 119 verse 130. Proverbs chapter 2 says that we are to work at getting the knowledge of God. Not the knowledge about God. The very same knowledge that God has, you and I should have. And in the Bible, that's called understanding. You know, somebody, uh, when we taught it, we, we taught it here again. When we, if you want to study these books, here's the generic way to study them. When we studied the book of Proverbs, I told you that Proverbs represented the mind of God. And it did. We had a couple leave the church because of the fact that we had been in Proverbs, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And uh, uh, they felt like that, uh, you know, that I had spent too much, too long in Proverbs. And I asked them, I said, well, Proverbs is the mind of God. How fast would you like to go through God's mind? And that's really the problem today. See? You see the book of Proverbs as a book in the Old Testament. You don't see it as the mind of God. You don't see a book that God put in there that'll show you everything that's in his mind. Now, if I really believe that and I want to have a relationship with God and I really want to know him, where do you think I'm going to hang out? And how quickly am I going to want to get through that? But you want to get through the book of Proverbs, the mind of God, like you want to get through your prayer very quickly like you want to get through church service. Hurry up, I'm hungry. See? And I've told you before that where if you want to, you know, the five wisdom books, if you want the mind of God, you look at the book of Proverbs. If you want to find the heart of God, then you look at the book of Psalms. If you want to find the sufferings of God, then you look at the book of Job. And if you want to find out the mind of the Spirit, you get into the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you want to find out the mind of Christ, you go to the book of Song of Solomon. Now, you don't have to have an IQ of 120. My IQ, right above subplant life, will do just fine. You don't, have to be a, uh, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. The book of Proverbs talks about getting understanding. And you're told in, and you're told in, in, in Proverbs chapter, uh, excuse me, in Job chapter uh, 32, verse 8, that understanding has to come from the Holy Spirit of God. You don't get that by going to college. You don't get that by even going to seminary. You don't get that by becoming an honor student in school. Understanding from the Bible clearly tells us that it it only comes from God. Now, you know, in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, you're going to find knowledge, you're going to find wisdom, and you're going to find understanding. And many, many people don't get those things. We've been through this a thousand times, but it's okay. Knowledge in the Bible is going to be the facts. You're going to get the facts of things. Wisdom, well, when you take those facts and you can apply them to whatever you're doing. An interesting aspect of that would be like an auto mechanic. He gets the facts of how a combustible engine runs, and when he can take it apart and put it back together, then he's got wisdom. When I look at a carburetor, I mean, it means nothing to me. 
you know, I'm, I'm like the, you know, it, there's nothing in an engine makes any sense, but a guy who has a trained eye and a trained ear, he can listen to it and almost tell you what's wrong with it. And it's a thing where it's, he's got knowledge and he's got, he's got wisdom about it. He's applied the facts to, and now it's produced wisdom. And that's true in everything in life. Anybody who knows a lot about chemistry, a lot about science, astronomy, math, whatever, I don't care what it is. It's based on the facts that they established the facts, they got knowledge, and then they turned that knowledge into wisdom as they applied the facts. And any unsaved man can do that. You see, understanding no unsaved man has, and unfortunately most of God's people don't have it either. Because understanding will always be the final analysis of how God fits in whatever equation we're looking at. And that's how God dealing with it. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 5 says, Evil men understand not judgment, but he that hath the Lord understand all things. See? An unsaved man, he doesn't, he doesn't see the death penalty. God does in Genesis 9. An unsaved man, he doesn't understand the great white throne judgment and die and go into hell. But if you're saved, you should understand it. You see, he's got the facts and he's got the wisdom, but he lacks understanding. He cannot see God in anything. And when you take that into government and you take that into history and you take that into everything and just make it facts and wisdom, then you can see how shallow you become and how you don't get a proper appreciation of what God is doing. I always use the example of World War I and World War II. And of course, you know, World War I was the, was the war that was supposed to end all wars. It didn't. It wasn't 30, 40 years later than we, we were in World War II. And uh, it's a thing where you can go, you get, go to the library, you can get somebody, put a book back there. I think we found it yesterday. Anybody can have it. It's on, I think it's on the Vietnam War, A Lack of Heroes or something like that. It's got a lot of good pictures in it. Take it if you want it. And, uh, but it's a thing where, uh, you know, we look at things like that and we, we see things and we, you know, and we, we read things and we watch documentaries and we see all the battles and we see all this and somebody talks about World War I, what a terrible time it was, and World War II, what a terrible time it was. And we look at all those things and a guy will take the facts and he'll get wisdom. He can give you the date of Pearl Harbor, give you the date of the Battle of the Boat, give you the date of the Battle of uh, Midway, give you the date of the Battle of Wake Island, he can give you the date of the Battle of the, of the, uh, in, in Africa, in El Alamein. He can give you all of that stuff and he can lay it out and you get it. But he has no understanding. Because when you back up and look at World War I and World War II from God's standpoint and understanding, World War I got the land ready for the Jew and World War II got the Jew ready for the land. And in 1948, he becomes a nation. Now, it's hard for us to get that. You know why? Because we're so stupid when it comes to the Bible and so stuck on ourselves, it's hard for us to believe that God would kill 300 million people just to put his people back in the land. See? You have no understanding. You're the same crowd that back in Noah's time, I mean, what, eight, probably eight billion people on a planet in Noah's time? How many little babies that was? How many little kids that was? Yet God drowned them all out. See? You know what your problem is? You don't understand. You don't get it. 
So verse 14 last week helps us understand better the crucifixion. And when you see the crucifixion, I, 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 we don't preach an Easter message around here. We ignore Easter. But from time to time, you know, if I'm preaching on the crucifixion, I will clearly tell you that this is one of the areas where most of God's people, they have facts and they have wisdom because you've been to, all been to Easter services and you'll all hear the nice little stories with the palm trees and the little lilies and the, and the ducks and the rabbits and the chickens and all that stuff. But you have no understanding of that day. You know, the most you ever get is Christ on the cross, a little trickle of blood coming down, you know, and you never see it. If you really understood the crucifixion and Easter was really a spiritual day, you'd all show up in sackcloth and ashes. But oh no. We put on our ash star bonnet with all of our frills upon it for our ash star parade. We bring in the Easter bunnies, which is pagan out of Egypt. We bring in Ashtar, the god of fertility, for Easter. And we all have a wonderful time. You see, you got facts and you got a little bit of wisdom. But you ain't got squat when it comes to understanding. And God looks down at that mess and you actually go to church thinking God is pleased. Not only do you have no understanding about, you don't have understanding with God and what he, how he looks at things. In Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible tells us that we are to consider him. And then gives us three things that we are to consider him in. And it takes understanding to get these three things. He says, first of all, consider who he was. Second of all, consider what he endured. And third, consider what he became. And last week was a great key to this. Who he was, he was God's son. He was God manifested in the flesh. What he endured, the shame of the cross. And what he became, he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might became the righteousness of God in him. He became my serpent. And John chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 21 helps lay out all of that. So we can honestly and truly with understanding consider him. Absolutely vital today anyhow, probably all true down through Christianity, but certainly today absolutely vital to our survival as a New Testament Christianity today. Now let's move on to the next verse, shall we? Let's use our trained eye today. We're going we're gonna to exercise ourselves a little bit. Let me show you what to look for, what not to look for, what ought to pop out to you. And maybe as I'm reading these things, you can take yourself a little test and see if you can pick it out before I say it. Verse 15. He said, For God so loved the world that he became his only begotten Son, and who shall believe in him is not perfect, but everlasting life. Okay. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, Let's use our trained eye here a minute. What do you see? Let's compare. Let's step back and survey. Let's survey here and compare what John is saying here in verse 15 before the cross 
about salvation. And then let's see what Paul says in Romans chapter 10 about salvation after the cross. Now, these are things in time. I'm not expecting you today. These are things in time you ought to catch. Now, look at John chapter 3, verse 15, whosoever believeth in him. But in Romans chapter 10, verse 10, he says, for with, man, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Now, did you catch that? Before the crucifixion, dealing with the nation of Israel, Job, John chapter 3, 3, a man, they as a nation had to believe in him who he was to them. He was the son of God. He was the son of David. He was their Messiah. You see this all through the New Testament Gospels. You see it in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7. Peter's preaching and everything he's saying to the nation of Israel is about who he was and they needed to believe who he was in him. But after the crucifixion, when the Holy Spirit of God comes, it all changes. See, Paul never confuses his doctrine. In the church age, we all know this, you can believe in him and who he was and die and go straight to hell. The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 19, that the devil believes and trembles. But in the church age, we have to believe unto him. Now, here's where, I don't want to turn this into an English class, but here's where the importance of learning English grammar. The word unto is what we call a function word. And it means to connect yourself to something. When we got saved, we just didn't believe in him. We got connected to him, the one body. Now, that probably doesn't seem like a big deal to most God's people, but to a Bible believer who watches every word and phrase that will separate completely two different dispensations. And we in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, I'm sure I read this in there, we are supposed to study the show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. For the nation of Israel, there was no connection to him. He came as their Messiah, and they were to believe in him that he was the son of David. You in the church age can believe in him all day long, all night long, and for the rest of your life, and you'll split hell wide open. You have to connect yourself unto him. And as I said Thursday night, you always want to note how Paul keeps his New Testament doctrine separate from the Old Testament doctrine. We looked at this Thursday night. He's very exact with what he says. I showed you the example of Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. I also used the book of Hebrews as an example. And this is why Paul never used the term born again. We clearly laid this out Thursday night. Now, let's look at verse 16. Oh, we're just getting started here. Let's look at verse 16. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, without a doubt, this is the most recognizable verse in all the Bible to anybody. I remember years ago when I used to go make hospital calls, they have little parking lots for chaplains. And you had to have a sticker to park there so they would know that you were a legitimate chaplain. Well, I didn't have a sticker. But I was running late and I had hospital calls and yes, I'm a pastor. So I parked in there and as I'm walking out, a guy 
a guy, one of the security guys come up to me and he says, sir, you can't park there. And I said, I'm a pastor. He said, you don't have a sticker. I said, I'm sorry, but I don't have a pastor. He says, can you prove you're a pastor? I said, yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whoever believed in him. And he said, okay, you can go on in. <laughs> works. It works. And without a doubt, that is the most recognizable verse in the world today. It shows up everywhere. It shows up in bumper stickers. It shows up in yard signs. It shows up in the end zone at football games. And it's a great verse. And every Christian on this planet should memorize it, should have it down and understand it. But it's a general statement of God dying for you and for me and the world. Incredible verse. And truly, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What a classic statement that God makes about his son coming down and dying on the cross for the world. You know, when it comes to your Bible, you need to be an investigator. You need to be an investigator of facts. Much like a detective at a crime scene. And just as a detective at a crime scene doesn't want anybody touch the crime scene, doesn't want to compromise the evidence, he will go in and put on those little booties. He'll have a little, they all have the flashlights now. And uh, he'll gather evidence that helps solve the crime. And what he will do, if he's a good detective, is he will begin to build a chain of evidence based on what he sees. And a cop police officer who becomes a detective usually takes a while to get there because it's based on his experience of being a street cop that doesn't necessarily mean he's a better shot or that he drives a car fast in a police chase, though those things are valuable. But what gets him to that point, or should, is the fact that after all those years of experience, he's seen things. And now he knows what to look for. And whether you know it or not, the Bible's a crime scene. You didn't know that, did you? Oh, yeah. You see, a crime was committed against God in Genesis chapter 3. And two people died out of that. Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.17. At the day you eat thereof, you shall surely what? Die. And seemingly somebody got away with the crime. And as you study your Bible, you will see this crime scene completely lay itself out for you. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find out who did it. You're also going to find out through the chain of evidence who his accomplices were. Who helped him get away with it. One of the big things in crime and solving crime is you're going to see what his motive was behind his crime. Then you're going to see how he is finally apprehended, why the Bible even gives you his court date and the judgment, and even tells you what weapon he used to commit the crime. You see, and a good investigator will not just see, like the detective at a crime scene, like you with your Bible. He just doesn't see it. He learns to observe it. He learns to scan it. He learns to step back and see 
what he really has here instead of just a little tunnel vision of what he's reading. Back in the 1950s, I'm sure it was in the 50s, you kids won't remember that. And actually, there was one on television yesterday. I watched a little bit of it, but I didn't watch the whole thing because I fell asleep. But back in the 1950s, there was the movies, the old uh, series of the old Sherlock Holmes. Basil Rathbone, who you don't even know who he is, was an English actor who played Sherlock Holmes. And Neville, somebody, played Dr. Watson. And you know the story. Sherlock Holmes is a great English detective and and Dr. Watson is his assistant. And um, they were the early runners of, of, of what you like today, NCIS and, and Criminal Minds. This was the early version of it. And after they went off the scene, you had Andy Griffith. You know, he was Maddox, and, you know, he always did those. And then you had Columbo. Remember him? Columbo. And then you had Joe Friday, Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. You know, had that one. And then uh, I watched one the other day, Monk. See? See? All these guys came along after Sherlock Holmes. You don't get that. They're all just a spinoff. And I used to love the Sherlock Holmes when I was a kid. And, and I, learned, I learned so much about the Bible from movies. Because every movie, plot has to go back to the Bible. And I remember watching, this is years ago. I didn't make the connection at the time. But years later when I got saved, I don't forget much things like that. Because these, when I hear a statement that's a profound statement, I usually stay with it. And I even know the name of the movie. It was, uh, just forgot it. It was, uh, oh, Scandal in Bohemia. And Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes were investigating a crime scene. And, they were, and he always had the big... The two flappy hat with the front and the back, you know, and the scarf and the trench coat with a big loop pipe. There's a lot of smoking on it. And his favorite saying was to Dr. Watson, elementary Dr. Watson, in other words, don't worry about it, I'll solve the crime. Watson always came off as a goofy guy, a, a, a doctor, but he couldn't see what Sherlock could see. And so they're looking at this crime scene. And Sherlock is looking at it, and, and Dr. Watson makes a statement about the crime scene. And Sherlock Holmes makes one of the greatest statements you ever heard in my life. And I've followed it in the Bible, and I give it to you today. He said to Dr. Watson, Dr. Watson, you see, Dr. Watson, but you must learn to observe because the two are not the same. Boy, when it comes to your Bible, you don't just see. You need to learn to observe because the two are not the same. You just don't see things, you observe them. We talk about patterns of human nature, how people will always do the same thing. You don't necessarily learn that just from studying the Bible. You know how you learn that along with the Bible? Watching people and their patterns for 30, 40 years. You observe. You observe churches. You observe pastors. You observe Christians. You observe people. Want a good afternoon? Just go to the airport in its busiest time and don't take a plane. Just get a cup of coffee and sit there and watch the people. I mean, uh, you observe. Now, we just read John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Okay, Sherlock. What do you see in that verse? Let's back up. What, what, when you read that, what... 
when you observe it, when not just read it, not just see it, but when you back off and look at it and you observe, what do you see? Well, obviously, the first thing which you would see, and this is not my point, now we've got another great crime scene, don't we? The crucifixion of Christ. Here in this crime scene, he was set up totally and completely. He was innocent and framed. Then you ask yourself, who did it, Rome? See, was it the scribes and the Pharisees? That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will lead you to believe. But when you back up, the plot thickens. And when you go back to what? Psalm 50, verse 8, I think it is. Then you see what the real problem was because you observe some things. Now, when I observed John 3.16, I, I, I get all my facts together. I, I don't want to limit myself to what I have right here because I have learned from studying my Bible, first of all, John writes five books of the Bible. Four of them bear his name. One of them is obviously the book of Revelation. You have the Gospel of John, you have 1 John, you have 2 John, you have 3 John. Now, I'm an investigator. I'm reading John 3.16. I don't just read it and just make my little mamsy-pamsy little thing about for God so loved the world. There's more to that here. I'm not going to just see it. I'm going to observe it. So I'm going to back up and I'm going to say to myself, whoa, John wrote four books with his name on. Then I come down through the investigative process of elimination. Third John has one chapter. Second John has one chapter. First John has five chapters, and the Gospel of John has 21 chapters. And based on my investigating skills... And my observance, I now come to the conclusion that based on the Gospel of John and 1 John, I now I see I have two John 3.16s in the Bible. Not just one. Huh. I wonder what the greatest Christ picture of a Christian that ever lived in a complete picture of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, who bridges the Old Testament and the Gospels into the 90 A.D. book of Revelation. Wouldn't that kind of spark your imagination? Knowing the Bible the way you do, knowing God does things the way He does them? That we just read John 3.16 and now, oh my goodness, we just find out that there's a second John 3.16 in the Bible? Would you think maybe there's any connection between those two? I mean, I'm just asking. Would you think there's not any? Would you not at least want to investigate that? Would you not at least want to have seen that? Well, I mean, what do you, when the Bible says search the scriptures, what does that mean to you? Does it mean, okay, I'm done. What does it mean when he says search the scriptures? Do you ever read the two and compare them? Again, this isn't hard. This doesn't take an IQ of 120. Just a trained eye and a mind. 
using what you know about the Bible and following the rules of observing. Now watch. Now watch this. Now watch. Everybody knows John 3.16. Man, it's put out by everybody that can, I mean, it's, it's, it, everybody pops it out of there. And I, when I, most cases when somebody sends me an email with it in or somebody this or that, I just laugh. Now this is why God's people know John 3.16, but they never really do anything with it. Let's observe them together. John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16 and then compare them. Shall we? Now our first John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Great verse. But that verse gives you the fact that He died for you in the world and tells us what He did for us. Now let's look at 2 John 3.16. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Ah, where 1 John tells you the love the second John 3.16 tells you how to perceive that love. How did you miss that? How, how, how does anybody miss that? Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, the first John 3.16 tells us what God did for us. The second one tells us now that we should perceive what He's done and what we should do for Him. In other words, the second John 3.16 defines the first one. Now, how did God's people miss that? And I'm telling you right now, your Christian life is not complete without both John 3.16s in your world. But that's what God's people do. They love John 3.16 because it's a general statement. But when it comes to perceiving, another whole matter, isn't it? And I've said it many, many times. One of the greatest keys to God in your Bible is the word perception, to perceive. See, perceive means you understand. It not just understand, but understand in depth. Everybody can quote John 3.16. Nobody can quote 1 John chapter 3.16. Never even stop to look and see if there was to. In one of the greatest books by one of the greatest types of the church that every aspect of his life is a model of something we ought to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't even have time to get into it today. Hereby perceive ye the love of God. Do you? Do we? You see, when you really understand and perceive the love of God's Word, then you do something with it. You certainly get into the Bible with it. What God did for you in John 3.16 and what, when you understand it, you perceive it, then what you're going to do for Him. He laid down His life for you. Now you're supposed to lay down your life for others. Now let me just explain this here. He's not saying that we all ought to go out and die for each other. He's not saying that if somebody runs in here with a gun, God forbid, and our security guys don't get him before he gets down the steps, and if Dave Phillips or Steve Brackeen's here, he'd never make it in the front door. But it's say that, that those guys are sick, and he gets down here, and he's going to start popping off some rounds, and he points, he points at somebody sitting next to you today, and, and you, you know you're going to shoot them. It's not saying that you need to jump in front of them and take that bullet. 
not saying you don't, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you grab the person and put them in front of you, either use them as a shield. But, but what I'm saying is he's not just, I mean, there may be times and you have to lay down your life for somebody. I mean, if you were all in a jam here, almost without exception, everybody here, if you were in a jam and it was a, if your car was burning and you were trapped in it and it was on fire and the gas tank was going to explode and I was there, um, I'd order some marshmallows and get some long sticks. I'd try to get you out. I'd break a window, I'd crawl in, and if we died, then we'd die together. I wouldn't leave you there. Now, obviously, that's probably not going to happen because, you know, I don't look at people's cars burning on the side of the road because it might be you. I just keep on driving straight. (laughs) But I'm telling you this. That's not just what it's saying. Though there may be times, hey, there may be times coming up once this country is going into a police state very quickly. They're going to orchestrate and everything that you do. And pretty soon, I'm just telling you right now, if somebody, we may get to the point where it's illegal to do what we're doing and you can't believe what you have to believe and it really becomes tough. And they start rounding everybody up and they start doing it, doing this and doing that. And, you know, history always repeats itself. And somebody comes to my door and says, do you know so-and-so? And And I'd say, yeah, I know so-and-so. Well, we're going to arrest them. Uh, They went to your church. They're preaching out the Bible. They're passing tracts. I need to know where they live. I don't have a clue. You say you lied to him. You bet I would. Just like Rahab the harlot did. Just like the women did back there. See, you don't get things like that. You know why? I love you. But you know why? Because you're stupid when it comes to the Bible. You never got that verse that lying is an abomination in the sight of God, but a very present help in a time of trouble. <laughs> That's a joke. And it's a thing where it, it, it's a thing where I wouldn't turn you in. And they say, well, if you don't turn you in, we're going to kill you. Well, then you know what? After the body, present with the Lord. Can I let the dog out first before we do this, you know? As a thing where, but it's not talking about that. Though it may come a time in life where somebody has to lay down their life for somebody, obviously. But that's not his point here. The point is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he became a dead sacrifice for you. And Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, now that you perceive the love of God, you become a living sacrifice for him. He died on the cross for you. The real understanding of John 3.16 is not only found uh, in, 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 until you get into the perception of 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Him dying on the cross for you, you dying to self for him. I mean, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, that he that findeth his life, you got saved, you shall lose it. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for it. It means that you give up your life here for yourself. He became the sacrifice, for God so loved the world, he became the world's sacrifice. Once you perceive that love, why do you not become the sacrifice for him? Through your dying to self, giving up your desires, my desires, our passions, our goals, our purposes in life, and embracing his. doesn't mean you become a monk and show up with a tambourine at the airport. It means that you realize that he's begun a good work in you and wants to perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And that as you perceive his love for you, John 3, 16, more and more every day, 
our perception of that love grows and we get closer to what he wants us to be and do every day. God's work on the cross, John 3.16. God's work of love in your life based on your perceiving that love as you work through the Bible and as you observe and watch and learn and perceive the price that really was paid for our salvation. You see, that's the real problem. We live in a world where we have everything where we want, even the people that are at their worst. We were driving down the street the other day and pulled up to an intersection, and here's a guy sitting out in the cold, homeless, saying, I'm homeless, I'm poor, don't have anything, puffing on a cigarette. Cigarettes cost you, what, $10 a pack? You see, even the worst people have it better than other people throughout the world. And because in America we have so much and we get all we want and we seemingly just don't need anything including God, we lose sight of the real price that was paid. You know why? Because with all we have and all we get, we lose what it costs. And when it comes to Christianity and God's people, when you don't perceive the love of John 3.16, then you don't perceive the love in 1 John 3.16. Two of them in your Bible. God's work on the cross, working through our lives as we work through the Bible, as we observe, watch, and learn, we perceive what price he really paid. And God does his perfect work in every one of your lives the work that he started, Philippians 1.6. You see, it's the key is learning to observe the Bible, investigating the stories, investigating the people in the Bible, the places in the Bible, the principles in the Bible, piecing together the chain of evidence, the facts that will always lead to the truth of God's Word. And as you study to show yourself approved, that he will perfect that work in you. Now, now, this is what you call serious Bible study. And it's a place, you know, my goal for each of you is to make that Bible work for you. That's my job. I understand some of you will never want that and never do that. That's okay. It, it, it's all right. It, it's all right. Uh, but you got to get honest with yourself. You got to look into that looking glass mirror, the Word of God. And you got to ask yourself what you're going to do with the book that God gave you. Now that you know that there's two John 3:16, brother, and the first one is wonderful, praise the Lord, but it means nothing without the second one. You can quote it every day of your life and never perceive that love and never be that living sacrifice for Him. That's why we're always making excuses. And I've said it many, many times, and I say it today, I'm not going to baby you in this. I'm not going to coddle you like a little baby and bring you along. You're grown adults. You've made some bad decisions in your life, and you've all made some good decisions in your life. But you know what? They're your decisions. And I'm willing to help you through anything, but I'm not going to let you blame your problems on somebody else or just say, well, this is, or I'm this or I'm that, and I can't. No, 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 no. You got the same Holy Spirit of God in you that everybody's got here. And you have the same ability. 
unless you're brain dead on a life support system, you're something to work with. But it comes down to you, see. And I'm not going to baby you. I'm not going to treat you with kid gloves. I'm going to train you. I'm, I'm going I'm to I'm build you young men and you young ladies one man and woman at a time, if that's what it takes. One doctrine at a time. I'm going to take the Word of God through people ministry and institute and the times Thursday night and times together we have and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mold you, I'm going to build you, I'm going to stretch you, I'm going to exercise you, I'm going to develop your senses, I'm going to refine your understanding, and I'm going to fine-tune your perception. But you're going to have to do the work. Nobody gets a free ride here. You earn your way. And I'll tell you something else, I ain't doing it your way. After almost 50 years at this, I know what works and I know what doesn't work and I am not wasting my time with people who just want to go around in a circle chasing their tail. I'm 70 years old. I know, don't look like it. I just saved you from saying that. I'm 70 years old, soon to be 71. I don't have a lot of time left. The time I do have left, I'm going to pour myself with everything I have into those who want it. More and more, I, I really understand and see, you know, the people who in this church have, have helped me, my family, the people who have gotten in and you've gotten it. And I understand, but I'm not going to be able to do this forever. I got more time on, 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 on the other side than I got left on this side. I know that. I got that. And with the times that we have today, you know, who knows how long this is going to be. We can do this in another year, and it may come, but it all comes down to the individual investment in every man and woman in this church, from the Timothy group back there to the Bible explorers back there to the, to the people who are being discipled, to the people who I'm going to do everything that I can because that's my job. I'm going to take the best and dump the rest. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. And God's people have come to this church. They come, they get in a little bit, they leave. Hey, you can play your silly games all you want to do. And you can waste every aspect of your life pumping yourself up like you're something spiritual. You know what? If that works for you, that's fine. But that's not where I'm at. I'm here to help you. I'm here to take every man and every woman in the last years that I have and pour everything and I have to you that when I'm off the scene, the things that I've committed unto you to faithful men, you can commit to others. But you have to make the commitment. You have to come to that place in your life where you get honest with God and yourself and I'll help you. I'll be there for you. I've said it many, many times. I don't care where you're from, what you've done. It doesn't matter to me. All I care about is where you're at right now. But we are not going to do it your way. We're going to do it God's way. And we'll build you. We'll give you steel in your backbone. We'll give you perception. We give you discernment. 
You'll see how that Bible will teach you the patterns. I'll lay every aspect of it I can. You're going to have to get it. Adopt the same philosophy that I had. Every Thursday night Bible study, go home. Learn what I said. Have it in your Bible. Get into your Bible. Study your Bible. Bring your questions Thursday night. Let me help you with that. You say, well, it's a dumb question. It may be. It's okay. That's how you learn. You don't learn by asking always good questions. You learn by asking dumb questions. But then you learn how it's really supposed to be. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, I can tell you the dumb questions I ask in my life. But that's how I learned. But you have to make the commitment. I've done everything in my power that I humanly possibly can to give you everything that I have. I cannot be responsible for you not taking it. Everybody has to take it on their own level. And I'm okay with that. I really am. I really, really am. But I know, I, I know that we got a lot of fire eaters in this church. A lot of young guys and young gals all the way up to your 40s and even into your 50s. <clears throat> that you got the ability to be everything that God wants you to be. And God puts you in a Bible-believing New Testament church and giving you a pastor who believes the Bible and will teach you the Bible and will give whatever you need. What is your problem with that? Why are you not taking advantage of that? Why are you flitting around out there doing your own stupid thing and never getting what you really need to get? Because I'll tell you what, you need to learn to observe. You need to get train that eye. You train that mind. You need to be able to see that Bible, how it unfolds, and then set back and just look at it. Two John 3.16 is in the Bible. And I'll be honest with you, I saw that probably, what, 20 years ago? Maybe longer than that. Well, how did I do that? Because I was studying John chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book, and when I got that, the Lord just put it into my head. You know what? John wrote some other books in the Bible. Yeah, he did. Oh, 1 John has five chapters. I wonder what the, this was my question. I wonder what the Second John 3.16 has to say in the Bible. Wham! That's how you do it. Doesn't take intelligence. Look at me. Doesn't take being smart. Doesn't take an IQ. In fact, the smarter you are, the worse problem you got. God wants you as dumb as a stump. And it's a thing where he can teach you something then, see? And we all have that great quality. That's what makes, this, it's a hallmark of this church. We, you come in here, we give you a stupid test. You have to pass it before you can come in. And so you're all stupid this morning. Praise the Lord. It's the way God wants you to be. You're so dumb, you don't even know anything. You don't even suspect anything right where God wants you. Because then you'll believe whatever he tells you. You see, a lot of educated people out there don't believe a King James Bible is the word of God. You know why? Because they're educated. You know why you believe it? Because you're stupid. Same reason I believe it. I'm just so stupid that I believe, honestly believe, childlike faith that God could write a book and put it out and preserve it and give it me perfect. I'm good with it. The fact that you can't figure it out out there, Dr. So-and-so, is the fact you have no understanding, you see? I, I get it. And God wants you, every one of you, in these last days of what's coming, the only thing that's going to hold your glue together is the book that I'm trying to give you right now. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Don't forget the... Uh